0: I'm sorry, 1842, 87 years old at the time that interview was done. He said, our lives are not better than our fathers were or our grandchildren will be, he said, but we're safe. And I thought about that. Interview was recorded in 1929. Safe? They were just about to see the stock market crash and the Great Depression. Safe, 675,000 Americans died during that influenza pandemic, six times worse than COVID. Safe, 1929, a young Austrian politician by the name of Adolf Hitler was coming to power and would rip Europe in half. That old man said, we live in a world of change. Boy, that's the truth. Our culture has changed and is changing drastically, in case you hadn't noticed. We had dinner with our son and daughter-in-law last week and talking about how we've seen things change in our lifetimes. It seems like not very long ago there was a very strong moral infrastructure in our country. Good and evil were very easy to recognize. There was a very firm difference between right and wrong, but that's that's gone now. We talk a lot about culture. It's from the Latin word cultura, which means to till or cultivate. And when we talk about culture, we're talking about something that we're trying to reproduce. And usually we talk about the disintegrating secular culture and the things they're trying to reproduce. But the truth is, folks, the church also has a culture. And we're called by God to reproduce the kingdom of God in the earth. I'm afraid, however, we've not done a terribly good job. Jesus said that we should be hated. He said in Matthew 5:11, because you're or blessed when you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. But you know what? We're not hated. Not really. We're not persecuted. If Jesus said we would be persecuted, I wonder why we're not. I think maybe it's because we've lost our saltiness. The church has lost her influence. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 this morning, and if you're a visitor here today, we're in the middle of a series that we entitled, What If?, and we're trying to envision the church that Jesus had in mind and asking ourselves that question, what if we got it? What if we understood what Jesus had in mind for the church? And I'm going to read a lot of scripture this morning, but I want to begin with a troubling passage. I saw something in Romans chapter 7. Now, we're going to be in chapter 6 in just a minute. But let me read this to you out of Romans chapter 7. It says, in my mind, I really want to obey God's law. Now, think with me about that. What's he saying? In my mind, I really want to obey. Do I really? In my mind? But because of my sinful nature... I'm a slave to sin. I saw a quote from a guy named Richard Wormbrand, who was the um, Romanian pastor who was tortured by the communists after World War II, eventually founded the Voice of the Martyrs Ministry. He said this, there are two kinds of Christians, those that really believe in God and those that really believe that they believe. Listen carefully. We... Humans, we were born for relationship with God. Now, don't just brush that aside. Oh, yeah, Randy, we know that. We already know that. I want you to engage in this with me. God created humans so he would have people that would love him by their own volition. God wanted people who would choose to walk in relationship with him, not because he's needy, because being in relationship and intimate connection with God is the greatest state a human being can be in. It's beautiful and it's righteous and it's holy. And our identity as humans is wrapped up in that truth, that we were created in God's image. We are fulfilled as humans. We are most fulfilled when we're in connection with God. We are most fulfilled when we are growing more and more like him. Another great quote I saw from Paul Tripp says, you will either receive your identity vertically or you'll shop for it horizontally. And because we're inherently sinful, we are always looking horizontally for our identity. Now, I got a lot in my heart I want to share you today. And I don't want to get in the weeds at all, but I want to walk through this and try to get us to understand why we are where we are. Lots of talk in our world about identity. In this meal we had with our kids, my son is a high school teacher and coach. He said, My mother's coming to school with a skirt on. And no makeup or nothing like that. He's not transitioning. He's just wearing a skirt to school and then going in the girls' bathroom. Well, the girls weren't having that. So he went in the boys' bathroom, and they sure weren't having that. So rather than cause a big problem, the administrator gave him his own bathroom. I see this last week. I did not know this, but apparently there's a group of kids in more schools who identify as animals. Okay, where'd this all come from? I just want you to think with me about how we got where we are. I was in grade school and in junior high and was uh, privileged to watch the sexual revolution on television. Some of you can relate. The Summer of Love, Woodstock, the hippies at Haight-Ashbury, Crosby, Stills, and Nash sang... If you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. You guys are sinners too, just like me. (laughs) In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, theologian Carl Truman writes this, No longer does a person understand himself as made in God's image, but rather as someone whose identity is endlessly pliable according to his own desires and felt needs. The current zenith is the sexual revolution, whose anthropology ties human dignity and personhood to one's ability to live unencumbered from any tradition or moral restraint that would limit the fulfillment of desire or will. And I think we would all agree, anybody who watches the news would agree that that's a true statement. But the question is, how did we get here? And in his book, Truman does a great job of kind of walking down through history and explained kind of what happened. At first, there was only the Bible. At first, there was one perspective about sex and marriage and gender, and that was what God said. That's all there was. But things began to change rapidly about the 18th century century in what historians call the Age of Enlightenment, when philosophers like Jacques Rousseau said um, the philosophy of modern expressive individualism is what's happening now, he introduced a concept called self-love. And Rousseau said that humans are fundamentally good. It's society that corrupts them. But that is exactly the opposite of what the Bible says in the book of Genesis, but you can see the cracks in the system. And then in the Romantic area in the 19th century, poets like Wordsworth and Blake and Shelley began to celebrate what feels right in the human heart. On down to the early 20th century with Nietzsche and Freud, where Sigmund Freud claimed that the sex drive is at the core of what it means to be a human. Freud said the happiest person is one able to freely indulge his or her sexual desires. And then, of course, some of us grew up in the 60s, and and we saw when women's liberation came to the forefront and birth control pill became very um, accessible and acceptable. Between 1960 and 1975, Playboy sales went from 1.1 million issues to 5.6 million issues. The divorce rate in America doubled between 1960 and 1980. We know, of course, that abortion was legalized in 1973 via Roe versus Wade. And in the 1970s, the middle 1970s, the only moral boundary for sex was consent. Question, where was the church? In 1996, President Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act. The DOMA banned same-sex marriage and defined marriage in America as a union of a man and a woman. And it passed with overwhelming support in both houses of Congress. This last December... 2022, the Respect for Marriage Act was passed. 26 years after the Defense of Marriage Act was passed, the Respect for Marriage Act overturned the DOMA. It requires states to recognize the validity of same-sex marriage, and public polls say that 68% of Americans approve. Question, where was the church? Today, the definition of identity in our vocabularies revolves around sex and sexuality, in in that if someone is not free or allowed to express their sexual identity in any way that they choose, they are deemed the victims of oppression. Also, our moral framework today is built around two principles, personal freedom and do no harm. In other words, I ought to be allowed to do whatever I want, wherever I want, with whomever I want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. And biblical values have no part in this conversation at all because the Bible draws lines and our sexual culture rejects lines. And truthfully, it's easy to me to see today why pornography is so, first of all, popular and pervasive because pornography presents sex as purely recreational. It's the ultimate expression of sexual freedom. So this progression explains why pornography is so popular and also so destructive because pornography separates sex From the sacred nature in which it was created any deep meaningful intimate relationship pornography is not about that at all it dehumanizes and objectifies creatures who are lovingly created by god in his image listen hear me clearly god hates sin but god loves you and the reason that god hates sin Is because God hates what sin does to you and to me. So in his compassion for his creation, God has established boundaries in our lives. And we may not understand God's boundaries. And God's boundaries may in fact feel repressive to us, but they are always given in compassion and for our benefit. So now here we are, 2023. And can I just say that nobody's interested in public arguments? I'm not interested in fighting anybody about this stuff. In fact, as Christians, we must always extend kindness to whomever we're dealing with. But I want to know where we go from here. What happens next? What is the proper response of the church culture to the secular culture. All right, that was all introduction. Romans chapter six, here we go, you ready? Deep breath. I'm reading out the New Living Translation, Romans 6.6. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, We were set free from the power of sin, and since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with Him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over Him. When He died, He died once to break the power of sin, but now that He lives, He lives for the glory of God. All right, stop just a second. This is unbelievably great news. This is a Bible truth that ought to just make us shout with joy. It doesn't get any better than this. Jesus set us free. Now, go on to verse 12. So, because of that Bible truth, so you should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, wait, what? What? Paul just said we were set free from the power of sin. So now, why should we consider ourselves dead to the power of sin? Okay, this is so good. Don't miss this, okay? This is huge. Consider. Other versions use the word count or reckon. This is the Greek word logizomai, which means to deem or to judge or conclude. The outline of biblical usage says this. This word deals with reality. If I reckon, if I consider, if I count, if I logizomai, my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I'm deceiving myself. This word refers more to fact than supposition or opinion. So what do I count myself what do you consider yourself alive to sin or alive to Christ here's the problem in Romans chapter 7 Paul said in my mind I really want to obey but in my flesh I'm a slave to sin and right here here's the solution Romans 6:11 consider yourselves dead to the power of sin so what do you think to be true And can I just say, it's not what you believe, it's not in your mind, it's how you live. I think a lot of times we Christians think, well, yes, I believe that's true. Okay, but how do you live? How do you behave? All right, going on. Verse 12. Do not let sin control the way you live. Yikes! What? Paul, you just said I'm free from the power of sin. Isn't that what he said? And now you say, don't let, what what do you need? Two things. Watch this. Number one, do not give in to sinful desires. Okay, listen clearly. Positionally, I am set free from the power of sin, Romans 6, 7. Romans 6, 6, our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. Is that right? Okay, Jesus did that. On the cross, we were set free from the power of sin. By what Jesus did, he made me right with God. That's established. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's done. Positionally, I am righteous. Now, practically, I am still in a war against sin in my nature. Galatians 5, 17 says it this way. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. In other words, when our secular culture says you ought to be allowed to do whatever feels good to you, the Bible says you're not free to carry out those bad intentions. In fact, Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death whatever belongs to your sinful nature. It's merciless. It's ruthless. So Jesus died on the cross to make me righteous positionally and practically I fight every moment of every day against my sinful appetites and desires. All right? Don't give in to sinful desires. And secondly... Paul says, do not let any part of your body become an instrument to evil. The implication here is that there is a constant pull from this culture to my desires. There's an attraction in the world that's always trying to draw me into that secular culture. I would never, ever intentionally Offer the parts of my body to evil. But I have to be careful not to let the parts of my body be drawn into evil. You see the difference? I can't pretend like this culture does not ap- uh, appeal to my appetites because it does. This, this digital fast has been such an illuminating exercise. For me, I don't know if some of you are joining me on this digital fast, but I've decided not to open any social media in the morning at all. So I'm studying in my normal habit and I automatically grab my keyboard, right? And then I remember. Now, is there anything sinful about responding to an email? No. Is there anything evil about? Checking on a quote, no. But I've got to be aware of that pull. I've got to be aware of that attraction. There's so much out there calling to my sinful nature, and I've got to put that to death. It is up to me to turn away from culture and toward the kingdom. It's up to me to put away my desires and turn them toward Jesus and his righteousness, right? All right, going on. Romans 6, 12 says, don't let sin control the way you live. Here's what we don't do. We don't give in to sinful desires and we don't let any part of our body be used as instruments of evil to serve sin. Instead, verse 13, two things again. Number one, give yourself completely to God. Okay, now I think that's pretty clear, but let me just take a second here to rehearse this with you. All right. We are invited by Jesus to enter kingdom citizenship and the family of God while we're walking here on earth. That culminates in eternal life forever with God. And there, in just a little while, teenagers, it's only going to be a little while, We will have everything we could dream of in heaven with Jesus forever. And so what Jesus calls us to is turn your back on this substandard world and give yourself to the world that I've promised, the kingdom. Abandon the allure of this life and pursue the promise of glory. And we all know what that means. Jesus himself said in Mark 12, you got to love God flat out. Everything in you passionately going after God. And here's the motivation back in Romans chapter 6. You were dead, but now you have new life. Could there be anything greater than that? We were dead, and by Jesus we're given new life. Therefore, don't use your body as instruments of evil to serve sin, but instead, use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Now, the mantra of this culture is no one gets to tell me how I'm supposed to live. It's nobody's right to tell me what I'm supposed to do with my body. I get to do whatever I want. But God's compassionate boundary established in love for our benefit is use your body as an instrument to do what is right, whatever you got to do to make sure God gets glory. Now, I believe, I'm wrapping this up. I believe that this must be the posture of the church. And I'm not talking about the institution. I'm talking about Christians, Christ followers. This must be the posture of Christians in the days to come. To not give in to the cultural pull. To be absolutely okay with being weird. It's fine with us if our neighbors laugh at behind their hands at us. It's got to be okay. And then also, not just resist the pull, but intentionally turn toward what God has for us, His highest and best. Listen, church, I'm going to ask you in just a minute to resolve, to commit, to decide, to find your identity vertically rather than find your identity horizontally. There's just nothing here for us. Obviously, I believe we're at the end of time. And I don't know if that's Immediately, I don't know if that's in 2023. I don't know what that means at all. My friends mock me about that, and that's fine. I'm, I'm fine with being mocked. I think we're we're facing the end of time. Randy, immediately, no, but it could, it could. Just a few days before his 17th birthday, my dad was driving his car when it was struck by a train. He had two cousins in the car. His one cousin, Curtis, had gone with my dad to pick up his sister, Dolores, who was getting off work at 11 p.m. And they were going on the way back home and they were struck by this train and both of my dad's cousins were killed on impact. My dad tells me that he woke up face down in a field and he could sense people walking around him And he heard one of them say, hey, here's one that's still alive. But he couldn't respond in any way because most of the bones in his body were crushed. Both sides of his jaw were broken. He was taken to the hospital. And my grandmother says that he laid on a gurney in the hallway for two days. And they didn't even clean the blood off of him. They were so sure that he wasn't going to make it. But he did make it. And they finally moved him into a room and he spent five months in the hospital. And for the rest of his life, my dad struggled with with physical issues. And frankly, growing up, this is stunning to me because I never knew a harder worker in my life than my dad. But he had problems with his neck and his back and his legs. And so this child had a terrible tragedy that affected the rest of his life. I remember asking my dad... Dad, you can't see a train coming? And he said, well, that was the days before barriers, you know, and it was kind of out in the... And he's going to say, did you try to entertain the people or did you tell them the truth about what the Bible says, even when it's hard? God's going to say to me, did you say what you thought people wanted to hear or did you warn them about the truth about what is coming? And I'm just telling you, church, that this world as we know it is ending. Jesus is coming. Please, please don't miss the warning signs. Heavenly Father, we are living in crazy days. And we're all very, very busy. And it is so easy for busyness to become distraction. And it's so easy at the end of the day to lay our head on the pillow and realize we never gave a thought to the kingdom. We're so wrapped up in life that our priorities so easily get disordered.